Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today is Helen Harrison, who is a longtime director of the Pollock Krasner House in Springs, which was the former home of uh, Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner. Jackson Pollock, one of the great artists of uh, any era, and uh, who uh, did his famous uh, drip paintings back in the late 40s and early 50s, outdoors in the backyard and in the studio, which is also on the property. And I'd like to ask you to just spend a couple of minutes with that. Tell us, well, first of all, are you born and bred out here in East Hampton? Or tell us in, in a minute or two about where you were raised and uh, educated. Sure. Thanks for inviting me, Dan. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. And I am not a native. I guess after being here for 40 some years, I'm a local, but I was born and bred in Queens. I grew up in New York City and came out here in 1977 to become the curator of the Parish Art Museum, which was then located in Southampton. And then I subsequently uh, went back to Queens and worked at the Queens Museum for a while came back and worked at Guildhall Museum where I was the curator. And then in 1990, uh, became the director of the Paula Krasner House. Tell us a little bit about it as I understand uh, when I've been through it, all the furniture that was in there when they were living there in the forties and early fifties is all in place. Tell us a little bit about the, and how, how you can come see it. Well, we're very fortunate that we inherited the property intact from Lee Krasner's estate. So it passed directly to the Stony Brook Foundation, which is a nonprofit that is affiliated with Stony Brook University. And when they were planning the museum, they were trying to decide what to do with the barn studio, which did not have any art in it. Uh, they inherited all the, the uh, personal property, the uh, furnishings, the personal possessions, but none of the artwork. So they decided to put an exhibition in it. And when the exhibition was being researched by the founding director, Meg Perlman, she realized that there was a different floor from what the photographs showed in the 1940s and 50s. It was just a plain white surface. So she went and pried up one of the squares that was formed this surface. And underneath it, she found all of the colors and gestures that had spilled over from Pollock's poured paintings from 1946 when he started using the building until 1952, after which he had it renovated and covered the floor. I so see. this, as you can imagine, was an amazing document of his most famous and most innovative period of work. And she called in the conservators, they removed the rest of the floor covering, and that's what people come to see today. They take off their shoes. Can they? Can they walk? Yep. <laughs> they, we give them special padded slippers. I see. And that protects the floor surface. But really, the only way to see it properly is to walk on it. And it is house paint, so it's quite tough. 
and we have it inspected periodically by the conservators, but it's held up extremely well. Then in the house, we have all the furnishings that were left when Lee died in 1984. So in addition to the furniture that was there when Jackson was alive, we also have all of the things that she bought between his death in 1956 and her own death in 84. I interviewed her back then when, and it was an amazing place. I remember that uh, in the living room, there is a, a stereo system from the 50s. Of now, Dan, let's be accurate. It's a hi-fi. A hi-fi. It is definitely yeah. not stereo. Not stereo. <laughs> but it was top of the line in 1954. Yes, it was. It was, and the speakers are very large and they're mounted into the wall. Mm-hmm. And he used to paint outside with the, with the music up loud, jazz or whatever he'd like to listen well, to. Well, you know, actually, he never listened to music while he painted. There was no uh, record player or radio in the studio. And when he painted outside, the only time we know he did was when he was being filmed. So uh, people think that he was sort of dancing around to jazz while he was painting, but that's not true. And mm-hmm. Lee uh, said that in an interview. How do people get to see this remarkable restoration? Well, now, uh, because of COVID, we're very limited in our admissions, but uh, we open on May 1st, and people would go to the website and book a guided tour. I see, and we're located at the corner of Fort, was it Fort Pond Boulevard? Yeah, Fort Pond is the closest intersection. With Springs Fireplace Road. Right. That's where he lived in, about a mile and a half from the street where he was in a car accident and died. Yeah. Well, it's it was on the same road, on uh, Springs Fireplace yeah. Road. And it's, yeah, it's about a mile south of the, of the house. Tell the listeners about what the drama was at the time that resulted in the end of that car crash. You mean in real life or in my book? In real life. In real <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I, I wrote a book called An Accidental Corpse, which is a retelling of the car crash, but uh, with a, a twist. But in fact, he was having an affair with a much younger woman named Ruth Kligman. She was 26. He was 44. And Lee, of course, found out about it. And she decided that she would go to Europe and put a little distance between herself and the situation and decide what to do about it. They were supposed to go together, but she decided to go on her own. And while she was away, Ruth Kligman came to live in the house. It was only for a little less than a month, but Ruth also wrote a memoir about this period, and she was ambivalent. She was having trouble deciding whether or not this relationship was going to last. So she went back to the city, and she invited her girlfriend, Edith Metzger, to come out and spend the weekend with her and Jackson. I think she wanted company, actually, because he wasn't very good company at that point. What was difficult about him? Well, I think just about everything was difficult about him, except his art. Uh, Well, even that's difficult for some people, but uh, he was an alcoholic and he was in the last stages of alcoholism. In fact, his autopsy revealed that he was suffering from more or less terminal cirrhosis of the liver, but he was also subject to mood swings, which was of course not helped by his drinking. And he was not painting at all. He hadn't worked in over a year. So he was really in bad shape. But when Edith and Ruth came out uh, and he picked them up at the station on the Saturday morning, August 11th, he had already been drinking. 
unfortunately continued to do that all day long. They'd been invited to a concert at Alfonso Osorio's house down in Wainscott in the evening. And they got in the car to go. And unfortunately, again, he was still under the influence and he fell asleep at the wheel. So they decided not to go, turned the car around and came back up Fireplace Road toward home. And for no good reason, he stepped on the gas. I mean, he wasn't in a rush to go anywhere. But there's a big curve at Fireplace Road right by the intersection with Woodbine, which actually Woodbine Drive wasn't there at the time. It's been cut through since, but that's where the curve begins. And he missed the curve and tried to correct, pulled over to the other side of the road and the car went into the woods and flipped over. It was a convertible. And he was thrown out of the car and hit his body against a tree. And that's what killed him. The car rolled over on Edith and killed her, broke her neck. Uh, Ruth was thrown clear and she survived to write the book and to dine out on this story for the rest of her life. Uh, she, she died, uh, she was 80 when she died. She became something of a, uh, an abstract expression, this groupie, she was. Uh, uh, that's a very me. polite way of putting it, yes. <laughs> she, I once uh, interviewed, um, trying to get him his, his sculpture, um, the sculptor of that era, quite prominent. Um, I'll think of his name in a minute, but he, uh, I asked him, did he ever become your girlfriend as he had to many of the other artists out here in Ibram Lassoff is who oh, uh -huh. he said, yes, she came by in the house and said, I want to be your woman. <laughs> and he said, well, he was up on, I don't know, on a ladder or something. And he said, well, the kitchen is that way. <laughs> I like that little story. <laughs> I could well imagine Ibram saying that too. So, so people can visit by appointment, is that correct? Right, they have to make a reservation uh, for a guided tour. And now we also have a virtual reality tour because you know, I mentioned we don't have the art. We have all the other stuff. We have the location, we have the ambiance, we have the where they found their inspiration, but we don't have their work. So this is a way of bringing the work to the site and immersing you in the studio with the work showing where it was made, how it was made, and you really feel like you're there. We take you back to the way the studio looked in 1946, seven, eight, and bring in work by Pollock. And then we have him talk about it. We have film of him working and you feel surrounded by this experience. Then it turns into the studio in the sixties when Lee was using it. She moved in, uh, that became her workspace after Jackson died and she used it for the next 27 years. So we have her paintings return, we have her talk about her own motivations and her own techniques, and we show pictures of her at work. So these are paintings that are in museums all over the place, but you can feel like they're in the studio. I see, because Jackson's are too valuable to put into a house that isn't really secure. Well, I honestly don't think that Australia will be lending us blue poles anytime <laughs> soon, apart from the fact that it's like 18 feet wide. Uh, it would definitely fit in there because, of course, it was painted in there, but it uh, probably would be impractical. Well, talk for a little while about the books you've been writing. I didn't know you had been writing books, and I started the uh, book about uh, Pollock's, uh, to me, is 
I've been, I'm more than halfway through it, and I can't wait to find out who 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 <laughs> who done it. But <laughs> the, the fictionalized version of how it, it uh, came about. But uh, how, when did you start uh, writing these? And uh, I imagine that you had, and this is just my imagination, that during the cold winters when the place is closed, <laughs> you got interested in writing these books. How many have you written? Uh, I've written four so far, and I'm working on a fifth. Uh, three have been published. I guess I started, oh, I don't know, it would be six or seven years ago, thinking about doing it. because I read mystery novels. I call them my jitney books. I read half going in and half coming back. So I would enjoy reading these mystery novels. And I guess, you know, it's sort of like you, Dan. You read the newspaper and you think, maybe I could do that too. So I decided, well, I'll give it a shot. And I got an idea for a story about the Surrealists because, well, they're a natural, right? And I set it in New York City in 1943 when the Surrealists were here uh, escaping Nazi persecution. And it's called An Exquisite Corpse. And that is named after one of their parlor games. So, you know, what a perfect title for a murder mystery. What was the exquisite corpse in the parlor game? Well, you would have three or four people and a piece of paper. And the first person would draw, say, the head and fold it over so you couldn't see it and then hand it to the next person. And the next person would draw the torso and then fold that over so you couldn't see it. Then the next person would draw maybe uh, the the uh, hips and the, and the upper legs and then fold it over and give it to the next person and they would draw the feet. And then you'd unfold it like an accordion and you would see what kind of a crazy mis mismatched figure you had created. It actually comes from, the, the name comes from a surrealist poem, but it was, since it was a, a physical a, a picture of a body, uh, that's what they decided to call it. And people still play it, you know, it's not an uncommon parlor game, but the Surrealists invented it in the 1920s. Well, it's not actually a game. It sounds like it's more like a good thing to do. Oh, yeah, it's just a fun thing to do. And yeah. the, you see, because part of the Surrealist ethos is to do things that are absurd, that are un, uh, unnatural, surreal, above realism, beyond realism and to create things that are spontaneous, that are imaginative, that come from what they call the unconscious. So the idea would be to do something that had never been done before. And of course, this is, you, you, you get a picture of something that doesn't exist. I read a, re a review about that book in which it was described that this corpse and dead body is found wearing these strange clothes that don't match. Right. Well, what the killer has done is, uh, or the person we assume is the killer, has put on uh, studio accoutrements that belonged to the artist who was killed, named Wilfredo Lam, and made him look like a real life or a real dead version of an exquisite corpse drawing. So naturally, the, the suspicion falls on the, his fellow surrealists because they're the only ones who would know what an exquisite corpse looks like. Was, it, was he actually a person who uh, was murdered in that? Uh, no. <laughs> See, this is the fun thing about this kind of work. You know, usually most of my, oh, well, all my other books are nonfiction. So you kind of have to stick to reality. 
But here, if I wanted to kill off a Fred Olam in 1943, who actually didn't die until 1982, I can do it, you know? He's not going to complain. I see. One of the things that I wanted to compliment you about, because I got here in the mid-50s, your description of what East Hampton looked like in terms of stores, uh, seat spray in, the people who were here then, the luncheonettes, the Jungle Pete's Bar up in Springs. It's so dead on accurate. Oh, that is so nice to hear. I mean, I'm really pleased that you feel that way because you are the living authority, (laughs) the collective memory. And I, I did run it by a couple of people who were here back in the 50s just to make sure that I hadn't really messed up. And in particular, uh, Prudence Carabine, who is a 12th generation Bonnaker, I asked her to read it because I wanted to be sure and get the Bonnock part right. I didn't want to embarrass myself by not knowing, you know, the lingo and some of the characters because some of the characters are real. Like Mike Collins, you know, he's a living person who was around at the time. He was a kid and he actually knew Pollock. And I asked his permission to put him in because he is alive and I didn't want to offend him. And he was fine with it. I don't know how many of our listeners would know what a Bonnaker is. All right. <laughs> and uh, where they came from and why they were here. And so tell, talk a little bit about that. Well, they're the original white settlers of the uh, Springs area. And it's like if you're a Cockney, you have to be born within the sound of Bow Bells. Well, if you're a Bonnaker, you have to be born within sight of Akabonic Creek which is a little river that runs behind the Pollock House and it runs out into Gardner's Bay. And so the true Bonnikers are the people of Springs and they settled here in the 17th century and have been here ever since. And uh, they have their own language or accents. They do. They still have, the original settlers came from New England and they still have a little bit of a New England twang. You can just pick it up if you know what you're listening for. Yeah. And- they have their own phrases. I don't know that the language is going to continue much longer, though. Mm. A lot of the Bonnikers have moved away yeah. to North Carolina. One of the things that uh, interested me, because I hadn't realized it was going on, believe it or not, is because I know most everything that goes on, is several other uh, former private homes from the abstract expressionist movement are now also available to be seen. Well, there aren't any others in our area, but there are over 45 sites nationwide, some of which are also uh, 20th century artists that are available for people to visit. But uh, for instance, Bill de Kooning's house in Springs, that's that's not available. That's not open to the public. That's still in the family. I didn't know that, but they do have a curator there. Yeah, they have a curator and occasionally they'll open it for special like the Museum of Modern Art uh, patrons or something like that. But you can't just make an appointment to visit. We are trying to save Jim Brooks and Charlotte Park's uh, home and studio. They were good friends of Jackson and Lee and came out here and originally settled in Montauk and then moved their uh, house to Neckpath in Springs. And we're trying to save that and get that one open. There's also an artist's house on uh, Squaw Road that was a farm. Is that Oh, Duck Creek. Yes, of course. Well, the house isn't open, but the studio is. A beautiful barn that was moved there. It was a gardener barn, actually. It was moved there by John Little, 
who was another friend of Jackson and Lee. See, Jackson and Lee acted as magnets. They brought their friends out and then their friends started buying property. So by 1960, there's a wonderful map in the East Hampton Library that shows East Hampton in 1960 and uh, has all these little identifiers around it, like in the ocean, you know, there are fishing boats and sailing boats. Well, in Springs, there's an artist with an easel set up out in plein air. And so it was already known as the artist enclave. But John Little's property uh, was taken over by the town and they renovated the barn, which was his studio. And now it's used for exhibitions and performances and it's called the Art Center at Duck Creek. But the house itself, the old Edwards house, that is still not open. Is that set up with uh, Little's work inside of it? No, but there will be a John Little exhibition there this coming summer. I see. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it's wonderful because most of the work that they'll show will have been created in that building. Uh, are there any future plans that, to change anything about how uh, the Pollock Krasner house is operated or is, is it pretty much set? Oh, I hope we're set. <laughs> I think we're pretty pretty stable. We had a an endowment drive in 2012, which was Pollock's centennial year, and uh, so the the property is now endowed. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Helen. I've enjoyed our time together, and I hope our listeners also uh, did, did so. This was Helen Harrison, the director of the Pollock Krasner Museum, and a polished mystery writer who's been writing books that are- Well, they're and... historical mysteries. They're set in, in real time, in real places, but with fictional characters mixing with the real ones. And today is actually the publication date of the third one, which is called An Artful Corpse. And that is set at the Art Students League in 1967. So I hope everyone will enjoy reading it. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me, Dan. Sure. Bye. Bye-bye.